you tonight, would you please go ahead and turn over to John chapter 18. We are continuing right along in our series uh, through John's gospel. Of course, as uh, let me remind you again, John was one of Jesus' disciples. And years later, at the, when he was maybe perhaps even the only disciple left, well in his old age, he wrote an account of his time with Jesus. And he says in his gospel that I'm writing this so anybody who reads it will believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why he wrote it. And we have this incredible account, and we've been going through it um, at a fairly rapid pace. Sometimes I feel like, um, 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 like when you make a movie, and they say they have to edit it, and they have to leave a lot on the chopping room floor. Sometimes I feel like that with the Gospel of John. There's a lot we're not covering. That's why I'm trusting you to read it on your own and to also spend time. And, you know, with the preaching on Sunday and you spending time in John's Gospel during the week, you get a lot more out of our time together. Now, where we left off last week, we left off with Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. It's a Thursday evening, and we know a lot about what happened that Thursday evening because John spends the bulk of his writing about the last week of Jesus' life talking about this last night together, this Thursday night before Jesus goes to the cross. And it has been a full evening. It has been an emotional evening that Jesus spends with his disciples. You might recall just quickly, if you go back to chapter 13, we see that Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And as you keep reading, you'll learn that Jesus says, hey, Judas is going to betray me, and Peter is going to deny me. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I'm going to be leaving soon, too. And this was very um, stressful for the disciples. But what did Jesus say right after that? You are not going to be alone. I'm going to spend, send the Holy Spirit. And he brings this comforting word to them that he spends a lot of time talking about what the Holy Spirit will do and, and how it will help them and what will be accomplished. Now, that night, Jesus also shares a number of things with his disciples. There is uh, this talk of heaven where Jesus is going to go and prepare it. And he says, the way to heaven is through me because I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he was also talking about love. There's a lot of conversation about love in this final night. Jesus talks to his disciples about loving him and keeping his commandments. And then there's this very special interaction that Jesus has with his disciples where he equates the relationship like a vine and a branch. And he's like, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Stay in me and I'll stay in you. And together great things can be accomplished and he talks to them about loving each other. He says, you guys love each other like I have loved you. Now, John doesn't write about it in his gospel, but this is the night that Jesus also shares that last supper with his disciples. Um, and he will, in the course of that meal, take the bread and the wine, and he will use those two emblems to teach his disciples about remembrance and remembering him after he's gone. And this Last Supper on this Thursday evening, it really does set the foundation of remembrance and communion that we celebrate here at New Life every single week. We just did that. It's an overflow of what took place on this final Thursday night. And then as you come to chapter 17, Jesus will pray this amazing prayer it takes up the entire chapter. All of chapter 17 is this 
prayer, and, and some have referred to it, and I would agree with them, that it's the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth, and it's the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. I want to encourage you to read it because it's, it's right from Jesus' heart. It's passionate. He prays about a lot of things. Writer Warren Wiersbe says this about Jesus' prayer that night. He says, to think that we are privileged to listen in as God the Son converses with his Father just as he is about to give his life for the ransom for, as a ransom for sinners. Man, it's a powerful prayer, and I do hope, if you have not read it yet, that you will do that, because what you'll see in that prayer is that Jesus will first pray for himself, and he will share with the Father that his work here on earth has been finished. And then he transitions that prayer into praying for his disciples, and he says, Lord, please bless them and, and, and keep them. And then finally... You may not even know this, but Jesus closes his prayer by praying for you and me. And he prays for the church that will come. Did you know that the night before Jesus went to the cross, you were on his mind? He was thinking about those who would come to believe long after the events of that weekend. He prays for us and he prays that we would be unified together and one day all together share in his glory. And as you read through that prayer, you're going to see that Jesus uses that prayer and, and he summarizes some of the major themes and ideas that have encapsulated his entire ministry. It truly is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth. It's the greatest prayer ever recorded in scripture. And then after that prayer... They continue on out of the upper room. In fact, most Bible scholars pretty much agree that Jesus prays this prayer. And what would have most likely happened is that he and his disciples, they, you know, minus Judas, of course, he has already gone out to strike his deal and betray Jesus. But they would have sung a song together. It would have been a traditional Passover psalm. Then they would have left the upper room and they would have headed for the Garden of Gethsemane, which was Jesus' custom. And the Bible tells us that Jesus went there often to pray and he went there often with his disciples. So if you got your Bible, look at John chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 1. And let's just walk down through the text together of the things that happen when the disciples and Jesus leave the upper room move into the Garden of Gethsemane, and as things start to transform and take place, uh, would be Jesus' um, Thursday into Friday morning. It says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, doesn't this sound like something right out of a movie? I mean, you can visualize this, right? Here comes Judas saying, follow me. And these guys have torches. They've got weapons. They've got lanterns. And the sun is down. It's dark outside. And it's almost like this mob is coming to get Jesus. Now, verse 4, it says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen. Again, just another one of many places where it shows how much control Jesus actually had over all this. Jesus knew it was going to happen. He was prepared. This is all falling into God's vision. 
So Jesus knew it was going to happen. He went out and asked them, who is it you want? Now, now Jesus already knew. Jesus wasn't curious. Jesus knew who they wanted, but what do you guys want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, he says. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, let's stop there for just a minute because I find this extremely awesome. All right, all that's going on here, I see so many things. I wish I could point them all out to you, but there's a couple things I would like to share with you at this point. John is the only gospel writer out of the four who records this detail of all of these people falling to the ground. Now, I would have thought all of them would have recorded this, but they didn't. John was the only one that clues us into this detail. You get this mental picture that they're all come up like, we're looking for Jesus. And he's like, that's me. And the sound of Jesus' voice is like, boom, and they all fall to the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but this is how my brain works. If I was one of the guys carrying a torch or carrying a weapon or come, coming to get Jesus, and the very sound of his voice knocked me on my rear end, I might think twice about what I'm doing there that night. I don't know about you, but that was an important detail that John clues us in. Now, here's the other thing I want to point out, and this is ironic. John is the only gospel writer who does not include the detail that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Now, for whatever reason, John doesn't include that detail. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do, but not John. I don't know why. Maybe it was so much common knowledge by that point, or it just wasn't relevant to what John was trying to accomplish with his writing. But we do know from the other Gospels that that night when Judas shows up, Matthew tells us that, that Judas, he, 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 he had arranged that there would be a signal with these troops that are with him. And the signal would be a kiss, which for us today, that is the equivalent of a handshake, all right? It's, it's a greeting. It's not hostile. It's a welcome greeting. So their holy kiss was like our handshake, so he comes up to Jesus, and Jesus says, Matthew says that Jesus said, he said, uh, um, greetings, rabbi. That's how Judas approaches Jesus that night. Greetings, rabbi. It's a respectful thing. And Jesus said, do what you came for, friend. We could analyze those words all night long, but it says a lot. Now Luke gives us another detail. In that moment where Judas is kissing him and signaling that this is the one, Jesus asked him, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? It almost has this imagery of like, you're coming at me with welcome, but you have a knife in your hand to get me in the back. Are you actually going to betray me this way? Now, where exactly did this fall? And that John doesn't include those details, but we can kind of assume that these guys come to find Jesus. Who do you want? Judas comes up, and he says, greeting, Rabbi. And Jesus says, just do what you're going to do. Are you really doing this with a kiss? And he does. Look at verse 7. Again, he asked him, who do you want? I think this is after they picked themselves up off the ground. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. Who's he talking about? All of his disciples. Let them go. 
This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. This is a reference to things Jesus said earlier in his ministry. You can go back to John chapter 6 where Jesus talks openly about the Lord. You know, he wouldn't lose any of those that the Lord gave him. Most recently... That very night in his prayer, John chapter 17, specifically verse 12, Jesus speaks about not losing any of these disciples. And in that moment, this was part of what Jesus was referring to. I'm not losing any of you disciples to any of this. So he says to these soldiers, let these guys go. And it's pointing out this was to fulfill what Jesus had already said earlier in his ministry. Now, now look at verse 10. And I love this part. This is familiar territory to many Christians. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword. Why in the world would Peter be carrying a sword? I don't know. He drew it and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus, which means that Peter has terrible aim. You know, that's really what that means. Or Malchus has really great reflexes. But Peter was going for his head, and he misses, and he hits him in the ear, and Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? And again, John leaves out a detail that Luke includes. John makes no mention of Malchus's ear after this, but Luke lets us know that Jesus touches Malcolm's ear and completely heals it. Now, just think this through with me. We're picking up these details. Why well, I say often, you got to read all four Gospels to get the complete picture of all the details together and how they uh, harmonize together. But, but just think if you were a part of that group to come get Jesus. You get knocked on your rear at the very sound of his voice. And then you watch him tenderly heal a man's severed ear. I'd really be questioning what my intentions were that night. But we don't get any more details than that. It says in verse 12, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. That was a reference to something that happened earlier in Jesus' ministry when Caiaphas was trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. The best way to describe what happens next in the next few hours um, is simply to say that Jesus got jerked from one place to the other in what could only be described as a kangaroo court. Now, this is where you've got to read all four Gospels to get the exact trajectory of what happened that evening. But we know that they took Jesus first to the house of Annas. Annas was the former high priest, like the highest ranking religious leader. He's not that now, but they took it to his house first, and they kind of informally interrogated him. And then after that, they take Jesus to Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. And uh, along with Caiaphas was Anybody they could have summoned in the middle of the night that belonged to the Sanhedrin and uh, uh, the religious leaders, whoever they could gather, and they had this kind of question-answer time. And then Jesus is taken before a man named Pilate. Pilate sends him off to Herod because he doesn't know what to do with him. Herod sends him back to Pilate. 
And that's where we find Jesus in the early morning hours that Friday. Now, John's gospel focuses heavily on Jesus' time spent with Pilate, the, the Roman governor of Judea. And, and we are allowed, through John's gospel, to have ear and to be a witness to this dialogue that Jesus has with Pilate. And it's ultimately Pilate, the, the governor, who has to make the decision about what he believes about Jesus. It's ultimately his call what happens next. And I, I would say this, that Pilate is no bystander in the crowd, okay? He's not anybody that got plucked up and said, hey, you make the decision. No, because of his leadership position and, and the role that he fulfilled and the authority that he had, he literally had the sole authority to say, Jesus, get out of here, or Jesus, you're going to the cross. So he had to weigh these charges. So Pilate asked a lot of questions. Now look at verse 28. Jump down to there. Here's what happens next. This is Jesus standing before Pilate. See, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. This all has to do with it being Friday, the Sabbath, the Passover, the big celebration that was happening in Jerusalem. So they're like, okay, you, you take them now because we don't, anything beyond here would make us unclean, and we can't be a part of it. So Pilate, verse 29, came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Well, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. So it's kind of like, well, duh, we're here for a reason. We're bringing him to you because he's a criminal. And Pilate said, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. This is Pilate not wanting anything to do with this religious issue that the Jews were having with Jesus. And then they said, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Again, why did the Jewish leaders bring them to Pilate? Well, they claim it's because they had no legal right to execute someone, which is very interesting because certainly they seem to exercise that right at other times. You don't have to fast forward very far into the scripture in the book of Acts, verse, or chapter 7 and 8, and you read about a guy named Stephen, who was the very first Christian to be put to death for his faith, and he was put to death by stoning. They didn't have any trial. They didn't put him through anything like they did Jesus. They certainly felt like they had the right here, but, but yet the word says John, John offers up another explanation for why it's going down like this. Why the Jews wouldn't just handle it and stone Jesus. Why they passed him off to Pilate. The scripture says in verse 32 that it took place to fulfill what Jesus said. There is this like almost prophetic theological purpose behind this execution of Jesus by the Romans. It had to be by crucifixion. Because that's the kind of death Jesus said he was going to have. That's what the Bible indicates. Jewish execution was stoning. Roman execution was crucifixion. 
And when Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up, and when he is lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself, that kind of death doesn't work with stoning. That kind of death is, is, is best viewed when Jesus is nailed to a cross, lifted high up above, and that is the image. That is the mode of death that draws all men to him. Not only that, Jesus foretold that he would die at the hands of the Gentiles, not necessarily the Jews. The Jews aren't innocent, just it would be this way. The Gentiles would do it. This is where you have to harmonize the other Gospels because in Mark's Gospel, Jesus, um, around chapter 10, Jesus talks about the way he's going to die. And he tells his disciples that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and be handed over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. So long before he gets there, he said, this is how it's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders of the day. And, and they will condemn me to death. And in doing so, they will hand me over to the Gentiles. And when I get into the hands of the Gentiles, they are going to mock me. They are going to spit on me. They are going to flog me. And they will kill me. And then, they, and then I will raise back to life three days later. That's found in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. So Jesus already called it. It had to go down like this. So when they say, well, we have no right to do this, even though they exercised it at other times. We have no right to kill anybody. They didn't even know it, but they're fulfilling the very words. We would say the prophetic words of Jesus. Do, do you see who's in control here? Do you, do you understand that none of this happened outside of God's hand? All this took place so that we could be saved. Oh, we worship a very good God. Look at verse 33. It keeps going. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Well, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about it? Jesus is the pro at answering a question without answering the question. I am a Jew, Pilate replied. Now, am I a Jew, rather, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Pilate wants to know, what did you do? I'm not getting an answer from anybody. Why are your fellow Jews after you like this? And essentially, these Jewish leaders accuse Jesus of three things. Luke's gospel tells us what those three things are in Luke chapter 23, verse 2. Those three charges are this, is that Jesus led a nation astray, that Jesus was opposed to paying tribute to Caesar or taxes, and he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah and king. It's that third charge. Now, that's the biggie. That, that, that's the biggie, and Pilate knows this is the biggie, so he asked Jesus, are you the king of of the Jews because that probably is the one charge that he could actually maybe pull a death sentence from are you the king of the Jews are you in other words are you trying to raise up a group of people for yourself overthrow the government is that what you're trying to do and Jesus says hmm well is that your idea or are you just listening to what others are saying 
you know, I don't want to make more of this than I should, but I, I think this is Jesus' way of saying, forget everyone else, Pilate. What are your real thoughts about me? I think Jesus is peeling back some layers of Pilate's life, and he's like, forget everybody else. What is it, Pilate, that you think of me? What are your own conclusions about me? And I think in that regard, we all have something very significant in common with Pilate. We have to make up our own minds about Jesus. What are we deciding? Who is Jesus? Have you determined that in your life? This is what I believe about Jesus. This is my conviction. This is what I I follow. Now, I do believe that Pilate was very concerned about a Jewish uprising. Anybody coming in and claiming to be a king is a threat to Rome. And that's something that Pilate has to deal with. Now, it is Passover week. So there are a lot more people in Jerusalem. It's very busy. And and history teaches us that Roman officials, they would swarm in on the city to maintain the peace. There was a heightened military presence during Passover week. Has been that way for years because if something's going to go down, there's a good chance it's going to be during Passover and we're not going to let that happen. I've got to believe that some of that was in the back of Pilate's mind. But Jesus is like, forget everyone else. What do you think, Pilate? What are your thoughts about me? Look at verse 36. It keeps going. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And and Pilate says, aha, well, you are a king then, aren't you? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate replied. So Jesus admits freely to Pilate that, yeah, I have a kingdom. And Pilate's like, I gotcha. You finally admitted it. You are this. You are this kingly figure. You are about to do something. And Jesus' like, well, wait a minute. It's not like what you think. My kingdom is not like your kingdom. We're using the same words, but we are not talking about the same things. Yes, I have a kingdom. It's not what you think. And if it was what you think, don't you think all of my servants would come in here and bang down the doors and rescue me if if my kingdom was like your kingdom? But my kingdom's not like yours. It's from, Jesus says, a completely different place. Completely different place. Now, I don't know this to be a fact. I can only speculate. But what Jesus says next in verse 37 is, I think, the reason why Pilate had such a hard time deciding what to do. If you recall, or if you were to read the rest of chapter 18, and if you were to read into chapter 19, um, and if you'd read the other gospel accounts of all of this, you'll see that, that Pilate was extremely conflicted. In fact, even his wife gets involved. She's like, don't have anything to do with this. There's a lot of conflict there. I think it's because of what Jesus said in verse 37. He said, Pilate, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
There's two things that we can discern from what Jesus just said there. And we've already looked at it in this series. The first one is this. Jesus says, I was born. So that indicates Jesus' humanity. Very clearly. Very, I mean, he has flesh and blood, just like everybody else. He was born in the town of Bethlehem. His mother's name was Mary. And in that regard, he's just like everybody else. He came into this world born just like everybody else. But then he says something else. He says, I came to the world. And then he adds on to testify, which means Jesus came with a very specific purpose. And that indicates Jesus' deity. It's his deity right there. So the fact that Jesus came into the world means that he existed before he came into the world, before his birth at Bethlehem, in Bethlehem. So he says, I, I, am, I am man and I am God. Again, this is another one of Jesus' reference. First in the beginning of his ministry, throughout it, and then here at the end, he's like this, I'm, I'm the incarnation. I'm God in the flesh. So Jesus not only told Pilate, something about himself and his origin, Jesus is about to drop on him the very reason for why he came. He said, I came to testify to the truth. I think back of what Jesus said to Nicodemus way back in John chapter 3, verse 17. He said, Nicodemus, for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the truth. That Jesus is talking about. Jesus had no intention of rising up an army to fight Rome. He was no threat to Pilate's power. And that's why he said, Pilate, my kingdom's not from this place. Jesus came to save the world by leading a spiritual revolt against sin. That's why Jesus came. And that's the truth. Jesus said, Pilate, and I'll tell you one thing else. Everybody who listens to the truth, everybody who sides with it, well, they listen to me. Do you understand what Jesus is doing here to Pilate? He's breaking him down. Pilate, whose side are you on? That's really Jesus' question. Who are you going to listen to, really? What are your convictions? Whose side are you on? He says, get on the side of truth. And it's in this moment, Pilate has to decide something about Jesus. And in doing so, not only about Jesus' future, he's got to decide something about his own future. And I believe somewhere in here, there is a somewhat of a spiritual conflict with Pilate. I don't know what to do. Is this guy who he says he is? Are these things true? What do I do? And it says in verse 36, Pilate just shrugs it off, really. What is truth? I was like, how can anybody know it? And I take that, and we can follow it along. Pilate's not with Jesus. He ends up not siding with Jesus, and he walks away. And it's not the end of the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. They'll talk again, but we ultimately know what happens, right? Pilate caves, and he gives into the wishes of the religious leaders. Remember, he'll do one of these. I wash my hands of it. This is on you, not on me. And he turns Jesus over to the executioners, and they nail him to a cross. 
You know, no matter how many times I read this account of Jesus' death, there's a little bit inside of me that says, well, maybe this time it will turn out differently. But it doesn't. Pilate doesn't choose to follow Christ. He doesn't set Jesus free. No, every time, every time I read it, Jesus goes to the cross. But in reality, that's exactly how it was always supposed to go. Jesus dying to save the world from their sins. You know, before we go here today, there's something about these final hours of Jesus' life, and specifically this interaction that Jesus has with Pilate. There's these questions that get raised. And, and these questions had massive implications for the world. These questions have massive implications for us, too, in this room. Jesus asked Pilate a question. He says, is this what you believe, Pilate? Or are you just going off of what other people are telling you? And somewhere in there, that's our question, too. Oh, that is very much our question, too. There comes a point in all of our journeys where we move from what we have heard and what we have read to what we believe. And maybe some of you in this room tonight, that's where you're at too. I've heard some things about Jesus. And I've read some things about Jesus. And I'm wondering if the Lord doesn't want you to contemplate the next thing. So what is it do you actually believe? And that's what he was asking Pilate. Is this your thoughts? Or is this just what you heard? It's an important step in all of our journey where we go from what we've heard and what we've read to this is what I believe. It's, it's a conscious choice. And it doesn't happen by accident. It's a determination. This is my faith. This is what I believe about Jesus. This is what I will follow. This is what I know the Lord has done for me. Huge question. There's another question that gets, gets raised between Jesus and Pilate. Jesus is like, Pilate, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? And I wonder, what about each of us today? Forget everyone else. What do you think? What are your specific thoughts about Jesus? Whose side are you going to be on? Are you going to be on the side of the world that doesn't love Jesus? Are you going to be on the side that does? Are you going to be on the side over here that's, that's full of sin and lives for the self? Are you going to be on this side with the Lord of freedom and forgiveness? I believe that's a question we should all ask and answer. Whose side are you on? Who are you with? I think it's even more so even for Christians in, in the way that our culture is drifting. Christians can no longer straddle those two things anymore. Whose side are you on? Are you fully sold out, committed for Jesus no matter what? I'm with Jesus. Or are you still pretending you got one foot over here and, and you want to be a part of Christianity that looks good and, and all that, but deep down your heart is still over here? There's a huge question. Whose side are you on? We just can't afford in this day and age anymore for Christians to be wishy-washy. Finally, Pilate asked this question. What is truth? What is that? 
You notice that's still a question that hangs on many people's minds today? Well, what is truth? Friends, I take Jesus' word on it. Those who listen to me are listening to the truth. Those who side with me are on the right side, the correct side of the answer to that question. See, these are very important questions that required very significant time and thought and energy. What do you believe? Whose side are you on? What is truth? I pray that those questions lead you to the truth, Jesus.